last time felt a lot more like a physics and an astronomy class than you know some little technique that was taking place inside us but that's the beauty of any yogic path or any yogic technique is that it awakens within us the understanding that in fact the entire universe does reside inside and when we're working with us with ourselves we're working with all of creation and that's the unity we want to experience isn't that that's what samadhi is it's not some abstract state of one day you know i'll just be one with it all it's just that i have to first feel that i am it all while i'm working in the little way in the last class we did the chant control the little pranayam and then become all pervading pranayam and that's what kriya is that control within us let's see where we left off all right i think we page. were on page 234 towards the end let's start right here even though we went through some of these lines but 1000 kriyas practiced in 8 hours gives the yogi in one day the equivalent of 1000 years of natural evolution 365000 years of evolution in one year <laughs> in 3 years a kriya yogi can thus accomplish by intelligent self effort the same result which nature brings to pass in a million years so we've already established somewhat at least mentally that is uh, yogananda says that it takes a million solar cycles of perfect harmonious diseaseless living for the human brain and the nervous system to be naturally developed to be able to perceive god so of course we went into you know do we really live harmoniously do we really live diseaselessly are we you know living that completely natural life or of course as we know it we're not in that state so the process gets a little elongated and by a little i mean a lot um but of course you're looking over here and you're like calculating okay 365 you know it's just like all right 1 million years kitna time lagega and here yogananda saying yeah in 3 years all of us should be able to get through this but of course the kriya technique needs to be practiced really really well for that one kriya breath which equals a year to actually account for a year the kriya shortcut of course can be taken only by deeply developed yogis so that's another very important thing the majority of us to tell you the truth are just i mean we're taking the kriya technique and we're perfecting and refining our consciousness enough that at some point you know that kriya technique becomes as yogananda will later on explain he says when breath becomes completely your mind when you realize that your breath in fact never existed but was a construct of your own divine creation and that's what we want to get to in the kriya technique until that stage truly arrives we're only going to work with our earthly karma from the past we're not yet forging away forward for liberation we're clearing a lot of the old stuff old understandings old habits old tendencies that we've developed that obscure at this moment our true sight of the universe of people of ourselves and so that's where the majority of us are just the clearing up until 
you know, the adding on can then take place from there. With the guidance of a guru, such yogis have carefully prepared their bodies and brains to receive the power created by intensive practice. So the guidance of a guru is very important, but not guidance like do this, do that. It is that you do it with the guru. The practice needs to be done with the guru. Often when those of you who are practicing Kriya, how often do we talk about you know, feel that the Guru is inside you doing the practice with you, that it is His breath inside you doing the Kriya. Because if you can bring His power in, then the process of, because I would like, you know, to be humble enough to say I'm not yet the highly advanced yogi that Yogananda talks about in here, but our Gurus are the highly advanced yogis. So if they can come in and support this practice and process with us, I think about Ram Gopal Mazumdar, you know, we went through a chapter of his and he would talk about, yeah, I'm, you know, meditating 20 hours a day, but I'm not sure that's enough. So I'm going to increase it to 22 hours a day. But all that said, he would still say, but this is all thanks to my guru. He would come and sit by the feet of Lahiri Mahashaya just to receive a little bit more of his vibration, a little bit more of his darshan. And Larry Masha was not, you know, up in the Himalayan crags meditating 22 hours a day. No, he was an accountant. He was going to work and, you know, he'd come home and say, honey, I'm home. You know, I mean, he was just living the life perhaps you're living right now. But being the guru, the power that he held was the power that Ram Gopal, Gopal Mazumdar was drawing from. In fact, the Kriya initiation in, a cell, in, in itself, I mean, the Kriya practice, it's a very intuitive process, even though you are working with your breath and it's a specific pranayama, you know, it's just you are controlling, you are involved. But to work with energy, it requires a lot of sensitivity and receptivity. And sometimes it's the guru himself who is just helping you to redirect that energy and you know lead that energy where it needs to go because for some of us it's very difficult we can only work with the physical aspect of the technique but the guru knows how to take over that intuitive flow of energy and just very gently guide it uh, and take it to places that we are not even capable yet to explore or even to acknowledge they exist. The Kriya beginner employs his yogic exercise only 14 to 28 times, twice daily. So that's how you know the process is. We always start with a very small number and then we increase it. A number of yogis achieve emancipation in 6 or 12 or 24 or 48 years. We talked about the Jupiter cycles, remember, every 12 years and why we do Kriya in rounds of 12, because it takes a 12-year cycle outwardly as well to affect um, any perceptible change. Yogananda said, in fact, to get a habit to be completely eradicated you need to at least for 12 years have not practiced it or overcome it. Then it, you know, the chances that it leaves your consciousness entirely is more so. You could say, oh, you know, it's been three years and I've not been drinking, so that's completely gone. But the vritti that in, in originally made you uh, susceptible to drink remains 
and for that to completely dissolve it takes at least 12 years or a jupiter cycle so even here yogananda is talking about 12 24 48 even spiritually speaking once we start our kriya practice we start looking at these cycles outwardly as well how many jupiter cycles are we practicing kriya for regularly and faithfully and that's the key part here if you're not doing it regularly and faithfully every day becomes day one <laughs> You know, just because you did it for three days and then you've not done it for, an, for one day and then the next day you start again, that becomes day one. You can't start like, oh, I got my Kriya initiation six years ago, so chal, mere six years ho You know, but in that six years, have you been practicing faithfully and regularly? Then that habit, that Jupiter cycle is working. The moment you break that flow, the Jupiter cycle essentially has to start. From, all, from zero again. A yogi who dies before achieving full realization carries with him the good karma of his past Kriya effort. In his new life, he is harmoniously propelled towards his infinite goal. I love the word harmoniously. In his new life, he is harmoniously propelled toward his infinite goal. And... Uh, Again, I mean, it's hard to say, especially for Narayani and me, you know, what we did, where we were, where we left off. But uh, it's been interesting how harmonious our lives have been in our ability to get back onto the spiritual path. You know, at an early enough age, without too much resistance, without too many issues kind of cropping up. Just almost feels like the very first years of our life were meaningless, just preparing us so that we could, you know, just slip in almost, you can say, just re-enter into that stream. And when I read this and I just kind of tuned into the word harmoniously, that really rung like a certain power for me. It's like, wow, it's not easy to harmoniously get onto the spiritual path, is it? How much resistance does the world offer us usually when we get onto the spiritual path? How much resistance our own loved ones offer us when we get onto the spiritual path? And uh, I think it's uh, rare for those people who've been able to just harmoniously return back into that flow. I like the word of also Kriya effort. Kriya effort. You bring that with you. I mean, I felt that was so powerful. Mm. I mean, all of our efforts in our home so practice, uh, you know, with our energization exercises, with the OM technique, you know, with any spiritual practice that we make an effort, you know, where we put our willpower and determination, when we add to that technique our willpower, that technique that we have infused with that consciousness on our next lifetime, we bring that with us. And it will support us in our present efforts to meditate daily, to energize daily, joyfully, <laughs> to practice our hongso without any resistance, to really go deep with the OM technique. I mean, don't believe that this is just the result or the blessings that we are receiving right now from the masters, even though they are, but it's really, a, you know, an effort that we have made 
in the past. So don't concentrate, and we say this again and again, for all of you who feel don't have results in your meditations, just concentrate in like, okay, today I meditated, whether it was a successful meditation or not, but this meditation goes to my it bank counts. account. <laughs> and you know, in the moments of need, in the moments where I will really need to develop a habit, habit or with any spiritual practice, I can have that. This belongs to me. No effort is ever lost. And, and I like to see that the efforts we invest in any technique, any spiritual practice, practice it gets, you know, like safe for the future. I, I love that. Like, you know, the good karma from our past, Kriya effort. Hmm. Wow. The body of the average man is like a 50-watt lamp which cannot accommodate the billions of watts of power roused by an excessive practice of Kriya. Through gradual and regular increase of the simple and foolproof methods of Kriya, man's body becomes astrally transformed day by day and is finally fitted to express the infinite potentials of cosmic energy, the first materially active expression of spirit. So, of course, we've talked about, you know, just our nervous system, more rightly so, our astral nadis. They're just, most of them are clogged, most of them. That's why, you know, the scriptures are talking about harmonious, diseaseless living. Because only when there's harmony and there is no disease on all levels of body, mind and heart, you know, only then are our nadis actually flow, fr free of toxins, open completely, that that life force can flow. And even then, they're saying it's going to take a million years of that life force flowing through the nadis to prepare the nadis enough to actually receive God. So imagine when we're trying to hasten the process, not only do we have to be mindful and careful, you can't just, you know, go in there because if you are in fact a 50 watt bulb, you know, just even putting 60 watts is going to be more than you can handle, let alone billions of watts that are going to be needed. So you really have to focus on a lot of people, especially in the beginning you know, of their Kriya practice. We say, you know, you only do 40 in that set. And, you know, two days later, you know, I've just, I've been doing 40. I'm just getting really good. Do you think I could increase it already? And their mind goes into numbers. You know how we are like, we like, jitna number means the greater the number means the more money I have, the more power I have, the more whatever it is I have. And they really aren't focusing on getting each Kriya to be so deep, so powerful. And you can only do that when you have a, when you have to work with a handful. And you just have, oh, I just have 14 Kriyas. I'm going to make these 14 Kriyas so magnetic, so powerful. I'm going to feel them flow through every Nadi. I'm going to feel them opening and burning a passage through the blocks and toxins that are present in my body. Then that means something. But oh, yeah, I just want to make it 20 and now I want to make it. Everybody's trying to get to 108 Kriyas a day. But the problem is we create such a bad habit of doing, you know, mm, just inconsistent Kriyas, that by the end of it, those 108 Kriyas don't account for much. So if you're a beginner, really, really be mindful and say, wow, I, you know, this is my opportunity to really go deep in each Kriya. Because as I start adding those numbers, then it becomes a numbers game rather than every Kriya has to be perfect. 
And also it can bring up, you know, like premature karma mm -hmm. and premier, nice point. premature situations that we are not emotionally, psychologically, and even physically ready to digest. It can be so overwhelming. So just trust that the Guru, Babaji, Lahiri Mahashaya, Sri Uteshwar themselves, they, they created a system. You know, they, they knew this is like a very safe, harmonious, um, quicker, faster way to practice your Kriya in order to uh, face your karma and to have the strength, the strength to face it without generating unnecessary, I mean, more. So um, it's, it's important to understand that there is a reason why Kriya is practiced in such a precise, unique, deliberately uh, concise way. You know, the, um, we cannot rush into situations that we are not ready to really to face. So um, respect your Kriya practice and, and know that every Kriya has the potential to free you from something, but if the attachment to that thing is still very strong, uh, sometimes it's going to be painful to overcome uh, that attachment. Uh, and, and Kriya has um, one of the greatest power that Kriya has is like it accelerates your karma. It just keeps bringing to you things that you want to work out because you want to, you know, go closer to the light, closer to God, closer to your own freedom. So Kriya has uh, that power to accelerate that process, but we need to be ready for it. And we don't want to, you know, overwhelm, overwhelm ourselves. I'm going to skip a paragraph and move forward the ancient yogic technique converts the breath into mind just as we were talking about by spiritual advancement one is able to cognize the breath as an act of mind a dream breath i mean that's even <laughs> like that's so far ahead in a certain sense to feel and cognize our own breath as an act of mind that already begins with our Hongso practice, doesn't it? With just saying Hongso with every flow. As Yogananda said, the breath itself, is, as uh, in the scriptures, is called the Ajapa Jap. The Jap that just happens on its own. Aham Saha, Aham Saha. Even the breath is trying its best to kind of affirm its greater reality. But when we start connecting the breath through Hongso with our mind, getting Hong and So to flow perfectly in unity with the breath. That's when we start getting that first sense of one being the other. That breath and mind actually are quite closely connected. But in the Kriya experience, we need to get to the point where the physical breath altogether vanishes and you can see it solely as an act of your mind. And so, these are stages that we need to aspire to, especially those of us who are practicing Kriya. Sometimes we get into these ruts, you know, and just we're like, yeah, yeah I, know, I know my practices, I know what I need to do. And we forget that these are clear moments that our Guru is asking us to arrive at. So the next time we sit to practice our Kriya, think about especially this line, 
Have I gotten to even close enough or am I even attempting to get to a stage where I can feel my own breath as an act of my mind? Many illustrations could be given of the mathematical relationship between man's respiratory rate and the variations in his states of consciousness. A person whose attention is wholly engrossed and is following some closely knit intellectual argument or in attempting some delicate or difficult physical feat automatically breathes very slowly. This is another thing we talk about just in the very beginning of our meditations. You know, our breath is closely related to our state of mind, to our consciousness. The moment we are, you know, our breath gets restless, our mind naturally gets restless and vice versa. When the mind is restless, the breath is naturally restless. And we give the example of, you know, what happens when we have to um, thread the eye of a needle. And we always say, you know, of course, we uh, stop our breath and we hold our breath. Or when we're doing something like reading a book and very engrossed in it, our breath naturally really slows down. So the more concentrated we are in life, the slower our breath rate is going to be. The more restless we are in life, the faster our breath rate is going to be. And then Yogananda says, fixity of attention depends on slow breathing. Quick or uneven breaths are an inevitable accompaniment of harmful emotional states like fear, lust, and anger. So another thing to be just mindful of, whether you're practicing Kriya or not, it's just every moment that you have, just keep coming back to your breath. Just seeing, where is my breath? Is it restless? Is it uneven? That's why these pranayams are so beautiful. All right, just even count breathing. Let me just get my inhalation and my exhalation to flow evenly. The more we harmonize these two flows, which as we talked about are the flows of duality within us, in the Ida and the Pingala, the more we'll arrive at that perfect center of our being. It's interesting that fear and excitement kind of do the same thing. You know, we think of fear as negative and we think of excitement as something positive, but both agitate our breath. When we are fearful, <laughs> there's the agitation of breath and when we're excited, <laughs> there's the agitation of the breath. And so in duality, neither of these two realities are what we are seeking, even though we would like to be more excited than fearful. But they're both going to increase and bring about eventually, as Yogananda said, some harmful emotion because that's what the breath does. The breath connects to the mind and the moment it's agitated, the mind, whether in that moment or it then kind of, you can say, deposits in its being the energy of agitation, which will then come out the next time someone says something to you, the next time a circumstance doesn't go the way you want it to go, then that agitation comes out there, which was just five minutes ago excitement. Because that's how volatile we are until we have inner control on becoming centered in our breath. The restless monkey breathes at a, at a rate of 32 times a minute in contrast to man's average of 18 times. So in a minute, we have 18 revolutions of breath, inhalation and exhalation. The elephant, tortoise, snake and other animals noted for their longevity have a respiratory rate which is less than man's. The tortoise, 
for instance, who may attain the age of 300 years, breathes only four times a minute. So even from just the perspective of, you know, those of us who are like, you know, always looking for a more youthful, <laughs> elongated life, just become aware of your breath. The more restless your breath, the more agitated your breath, the more the decay process of your own body begins to accelerate. When we practice Kriya, uh, you know, if you're doing it even at the most minimal level, we're essentially doing two breaths a minute at most. As your Kriya practice increases, it ends up being one breath a minute. So imagine how much power, as often as we do that, that has on just keeping our body even, just on the physical level, just that much more robust, that much more electrified. The rejuvenating effects of sleep are due to man's temporary unawareness of body and breathing. The sleeping man becomes a yogi. Each night he unconsciously performs the yogic rite of releasing himself from bodily identification and of merging the life force with healing currents in the main brain region and the six sub-dynamos of his sp spinal centers. The sleeper thus dips unknowingly into the reservoir of cosmic energy which sustains all life. We talked about this before, the importance of sleep. Can't remember in which satsang it was. But Yogananda would often talk about sleep as a necessity, not because we need rest. You know, we think of sleep as like, ah, oh, you know, I've had a long day and now I need to sleep because my body needs to rest and my mind needs to rest. But it's less about rest because um, when they did experiments, I talked about in that satsang on these mice and trying to keep mice just awake, not active, but just awake. You know, it's different between resting. I could be sitting and be awake and be very relaxed. But sleep is different from sitting and relaxing, isn't it? I couldn't just sit and relax for hours and hours and hours. Eventually, I'll get sleepy, no matter what. Even if I'm not out there, you know, jumping around or running around or really mentally active throughout the day, eventually sleep will come. And so they did this experiment with these mice where they kept these mice awake over and over. Not active necessarily, not saying, you know, jump around, up in hoops. They were, mice were restful, but they could not sleep. And in, in a very short period, the mice died. And when they opened the mice up, they looked at that the mice had multiple organ failure. But they couldn't figure out why. Why would all the organs just suddenly, you know, give up just by virtue of not having slept? And Yogananda said the necessity of sleep is not just rest. The necessity of sleep is that the soul cannot stay identified to the body for two long periods without at least having some moment where it gets to disengage with the body and enter into the astral world. And that's why sleep is such a kind of <laughs> deeply sought experience oftentimes. Because of that little separation it gives us, because our own souls cannot remain for too long identified with the outward maya with the body, with the, all the tendencies and the personality that comes with it. And we have to retire away again and again a little bit from it. And sleep teaches us that, in fact, we can disengage from the body. In fact, we can, you know, completely separate and interiorize our life force to the point where we're no longer, when you're asleep, you have no idea 
that you are this body. Especially then when you go on to the dreamland, you know, we could be whoever we want. We could be Joan of Arc and we could be, you know, the president of India. We could be a lowly beggar. I mean, you could be whoever and you don't remember even for a moment that, no, in fact, I'm asleep and, you know, I live in Mumbai and tomorrow I have work. And if we can do that in sleep unknowingly, can we not, should we not put out the energy in our meditation to be able to achieve that state? The voluntary yogi, and we are the voluntary yogi, not involuntary yogis of sleep, performs a simple natural process consciously, not unconsciously, like the slow-paced sleeper. The kriya yogi uses his technique to saturate and feed all the physical cells with undecaying light and keep them in a magnetized state. He scientifically makes breath unnecessary without producing the states of subconscious sleep or unconsciousness. So as we talked about, the breath is only necessary because breath vitalizes the body. It can converts, all this oxygen converts into energy, which in our cells is electricity. That's what the cells, what's called ATP. That's what it converts it to eventually. And that electricity, that energy is what keeps your liver functioning, your stomach digesting, your legs moving, you know, your brain active. So in meditation, what we're doing is how do we render breath unnecessary without, you know, the body also just becoming completely lifeless. We render breath unnecessary by directly infusing every cell with that electricity, with prana which is not dependent on breath. Once your body is electrified, energized and magnetized, then breath itself becomes unnecessary. That process ki bahar se andar lao, fir usko convert karo, fir usko feed karo, fir expel karo jo cheezen ki jiski zarurat nahi hai. That whole process kind of becomes secondary in that moment and then the yogi says, oh, I don't need to breathe in this moment. By Kriya, the outgoing life force is not wasted and abused in the senses, but constrained to reunite with subtler spinal energies. So rather than our life force constantly being drained outward, that very life force, the yogi interiorizes and allows them to center them in our chakras. And those chakras, which are already vortexes of huge energy, they become further energized and they release their energy further up, further up, Further up, the one above magnetizes it to it, the one above magnetizes it to it, and the energy begins to rise through our spine. By such reinforcement of life, the yogi's body and brain cells are electrified with the spiritual elixir. Thus, he remove, removes himself from studied observance of natural laws, which can only take him by circuitous means as given by proper food, sunlight, and harmonious thoughts to a million-year goal. Once again, Yogananda comes to that moment. So you've got food, proper food, proper sunlight, and harmonious thoughts. Another three things to remember and say, okay, if I can only do this, it's still going to take me a million years. It needs 12 years of normal, healthful living to affect even slight perceptible change in brain structure and a million solar returns 
are exacted to sufficiently refine the cerebral tenement for manifestation of cosmic consciousness. I know they are big sounding words, yeah. <laughs> but they're simply saying, as we talked about, it takes 12 solar cycles, it takes one Jupiter cycle, essentially 12 years to affect a perceptible change, Yogananda says, in the brain structure, because that's where our consciousness is at least being filtered from. As the chant went, what is this consciousness flowing through my brain? Each of our bodily organs and physiology are filters for aspects of our being. The consciousness of our being is filtered through our brain. That's why we feel my thoughts are being generated here, even though well, technically you don't quite know where these thoughts are coming from. And so for that change to take place, it takes a 12 years of consistently doing that. If for 12 years I eat a certain way, then that particular becomes the way that I always will eat now until I change that habit again. So it takes 12 years to reinforce or break habits within us by even subtly changing our brain structure. Like that, it'll take a million years to sufficiently change the brain to be able then to actually perceive and receive those billion watts of energy. Untying the cord of breath which binds the soul to the body, Kriya serves to prolong life and enlarge the consciousness to infinity. The yoga method overcomes the tug of war between the mind and the matter-bound senses and frees the devotee to re-inherit his eternal kingdom. He knows his real nature is bound neither by physical encasement nor by breath. Symbol of the mortal enslavement to air, to nature's elemental compulsions. So Yogananda says, our breath is our enslavement to air. When I read this line, it just struck me because air is one of the elements. And of course, there are other elements. I was just thinking about our enslavement to all the elements. And air is, at least in nature, Vayu, is the element that we actually can perceive. Above air comes ether, which is an element we're not yet able to perceive. And... You think about our dependencies on these elements. You've got the, your dependency on air. You've got your dependency on heat, which is the Manipur Chakra, which is the Agni within us. You've got our dependency on water, which is the Swadhisthan Chakra. And then you've got dependency on food, which is the Muladhar Chakra, which is you know, physical sustenance. Now, man can stay a certain amount without food. He can stay a certain less amount without water, he can stay a certain less amount without heat. If it gets too cold, if the heat extinguishes, he will expire much faster than if he didn't have water or food. And man can exist even less without air, without oxygen. So as you see, as we go further up in the elemental realities of our own chakras, we see our dependency on those elements increases. You can go for days without food sometimes even weeks without food. You can only go a certain amount of days without water. You can go a few hours without heat. And you can go a few minutes without air. So you're seeing our life kind of enslavement to these elements keeps getting more and more and more narrow. Imagine what ether does. 
Because ether, from that perspective, is the vibration of Om. We cannot survive without Om, even for a moment. But we've not yet brought our awareness to our connection to Om. We're so still centered in our connection to air, to fire, to water, and to earth, that we've yet to experience what our relationship with Om would be. Because if we make ourselves dependent on Om, then all these lower elements no longer have a hold on us. Introspection or sitting in silence is an unscientific way of trying to force apart the mind and senses tied together by the life force. So unless we're not acting upon the life force, you can sit in silence all you want, you can introspect all you want, but you're not able to separate your mind from the senses by withdrawing the very life force that feeds the two of them. In our own meditations, what do we do? We first practice the technique and then we sit in silence for as long as we can. And that's why the technique is so important. Until the life force has not been as much as possible in that moment removed from the mind and the senses, that sitting in silence doesn't do anything for us. But once it's been removed, then that sitting in silence is the most profound moment of our meditations. The contemplative mind attempting its return to divinity is constantly dragged back toward the senses by the life currents. Kriya, controlling the mind directly through the life force, is the easiest, most effective and most scientific avenue of approach to the infinite. In contrast to the slow, uncertain, bullock-cut theological path to God, Kriya may justly be called the airplane route. We've heard this so many times. Kriya is the airplane route too. And now we're starting to say, oh yeah, <laughs> probably must be, because we're really tuning into all the realities that create us, create our mind, create our dependencies, creates this life force. And if we can learn to act directly on the life force, to disengage it directly from body, mind and senses, then and only then will we actually make those you know, monumental strides that we are seeking. Narayani and I, um, you know, I don't know how many years ago now, but maybe three years ago, we were spending a few days with this saint, Swami Tattavdhut is his name. If you've read Narayani's book, you may have kind of read that little story of his between him and Swami Kriyananda, just a very sweet exchange that they had. And after Swamiji passed, you know, this other saint stayed in touch with us. Of course, he lives in the jungle, so it doesn't like he's not like, hey, Jurjo, how are you doing? But every now and then, which is every couple of years, <laughs> he sends a little message say, asking how we're doing through one of his disciples. But one such time, he actually invited us to come see him for a few days. And uh, he has his own path, he has his own disciples, you know, and theirs is not a meditative path per se. Theirs is a much more devotional, you know, arati, yagya, havan. They're really into that, which is also a beautiful thing to see. But uh, when he was talking about, you know, I know that Yogananda, he was telling, I know that Yogananda said that uh, Kriya Yoga is the airplane route to God. But I must tell you, it is not just the airplane route. It is the business class of that airplane. And it was just so sweet to have it come from somebody who's not even practicing Kriya. It's not even his path. It's not even his technique. But for him to just kind of say to us out of the blue, like, it's not just the airplane route, it's the business class. And then he said to us, keep doing what you are doing. 
You know, so that's what we need to have in that, that conviction in us. Because here we are, you know, we count our little meditation, and we say, Kuch ho rai, nahi ho rai. some days are good, some days are bad. Keep doing what you are doing. Just as getting on the airplane doesn't get you across, your airplane has to keep going where it's going. Keep going where you're going. Yeah, we've gotten onto the airplane, but are we going to take off or not? Just sitting in business class doesn't get you somewhere. So you have to stay steady with your practice. That's extremely important. The yogic science is based on an empirical consideration of all forms of concentration and meditation exercises. What does that mean? Again, sometimes Yogananda uses these you know, mind-boggling sentences. You're just like, did I even understand what he just said? The yogic science is based on an empirical consideration of all forms of concentration and meditation exercises. So he's saying when the yogic science was developed, created by the rishis, they tried a lot of things. And they boiled the yogic science by empirical consideration, which means that which brings, like an experiment is. You do an experiment, you have an observational result, and you say, Ye hota is chise. It's not based on theory, it's not based on, you know, just reason. It has to be based on empirical considerations. You do it, and something should happen as a result. So these rishis, they took all forms of concentration and meditation exercises before they narrowed the yogic path, especially Patanjali, before he narrowed the yogic path to an empirical process. And this is the path that we set before you. Yoga enables the devotee to switch off and on at will life current from the five, five sense telephones of sight sound, smell, taste, and touch. At will to be able to give energy to it or withdraw energy from it. In our meditations, what do we do? In our meditations, we withdraw life force away from our senses. But if you learn how to withdraw life force, that means by consequence, you also learn how to give life force. Give means amplify life force. In our daily living, we could amplify our senses if you want. When Yogananda has that little experience with um, Master Mahashaya in the crowded street of a mini samadhi of sorts, what happens to his sight? It suddenly gets amplified. He says, I can see through the wall, I can see through the people, I can see through the house, I can see all the way unobstructed for miles. Can you imagine that? Because he could amplify his power of sight. And that moment he did not withdraw energy from his power of sight, but because he's learned how to withdraw, he also learned how to amplify. Similarly, what did he do with sound? We amplify in meditation our sounds of the inner chakras so that later on we can amplify the sound of feeling Om vibrating in all existence. Yogananda talks in the same experience, he can hear people discussing, you know, some little conversation again, miles away. At the same time, we can also withdraw while we are awake and about. Um, there's a story of, we're talking about touch, the story of Yogananda that he, uh, Swamiji tells that, you know, while building a well, there's this really heavy stone that they were building the wells from and this huge kind of stone falls and crushes Yogananda's foot and all the monks over there are like, 
and you know at first Yogananda does nothing and he says now I will show you what happens when I withdraw the life force away from my foot and I place it over here and you know he was joyful and lovely and everything was perfectly fine he says and now I will show you what happens when I put my life force back into my foot and he says the moment he did that his face became red the pain became apparent and that's how the yogi is I mean, imagine if we could actually tune into our own bodies in this way. As a young boy, when it comes to taste, Yogananda was challenged by some little friends of his to eat. I mean, it sounds really yucky, but to eat this rice that was putrefied. For days it had been kept out. You know, and Yogananda just, he says, I took handfuls and I just ate it. And which is because he withdrew his life force from his sense of taste. And it didn't matter, it doesn't matter what's going into my mouth. But these are, I mean, I don't want to call them real world applications because you don't need to eat putrefied rice. But this is what the point being, it's not about your meditations alone. It's this ability to have absolute control over your own life force. And that's the ability we are seeking to be able to get, get us to live to our maximum potential and at the same time to be able to connect and receive to our infinite potential, both inward and outward. When Narayani and I were just going to start this, Narayani said, do we think we will finish this chapter or not? And I said, well, even if we don't get through it, we'll call it finished. Because there's just two more pages and I'd like for you to read them because they're just more of what we've been talking about. You know, a little scientific but very very clear so read them slowly read them carefully read them with a greater inner interest of like wow i want to do this i just don't want to know about this i want to practice this in my daily life and so let's just go to the last paragraph of our chapter and this is referring to yoga's sure and methodical efficacy lord krishna praises the technological yogi in the following words, the yogi is greater than body disciplining ascetics, greater even than the followers of the path of wisdom, jnana yoga, or the path of action, karma yoga. Be thou, O disciple Arjuna, a yogi. So these are Krishna's words to Arjuna, be thou a yogi. So let's take this to mean that Krishna would like for all of us to become a yogi and the definition of a yogi is one who has mastered himself through empirical considerations of having mastered his own life force. So let's make a greater effort, whether you have Kriya Yoga, you don't have it, whether you've been practicing it for decades or whether you just learned it day before yesterday. The ability, the potential for us in everything that we do to have mastery over our life force, to not give in to our emotions when they just come, to not let our thoughts just wander wherever they would go, to not let our anger and irritation boil up at the slightest provocation. That's what a yogi does, not just he meditates. That's not the definition of a yogi. The yogi is he who has mastery over himself in all situations. So let's aim for that mastery. O Arjuna, be thou a yogi. Beautiful. Lovely. Awesome. Well, 
what else can we say about <laughs> this chapter but read it again <laughs> again and again I, I really i mentioned this last week but i just love the fact that master yogananda chose to approach kriya in such a scientific way i mean throughout this chapter you don't see even a hint of him saying kriya will help your past lives and you this and you will you know it doesn't touch anything related to the mysticism that people come to kriya for you know he he removed all that and he gave us numbers <laughs> he gave us how you know explanation on how kriya works at a you know physical level what it does to your organs when you sleep what happens with your heart what happens with your breath and this is you know the number of years that will take you you know the planets i mean <laughs> he brings everything to such a scientific way like for anyone even the most atheist person if he wants to know what kriya is he could be convinced through this chapter he wouldn't completely reject it because it really gives facts i mean i i don't think of any other master who has explained perhaps there is no but publicly the kriya science in such a you know factual scientific mm -hmm. way so if you have any friend that doesn't believe in any of this nonsense <laughs> <laughs> you know this chapter could be a good one to just forward to him when they ask you but what that kriya thing does for you you know this could be you know read this and see what can you make um, of it and of course apart from jokes it, this is such a sacred technique and we should perceive ourselves as you know someone who already has done some sort of effort uh, on our spiritual life and we have come to a point point of our evolution where we are ready to work with subtle energies at the different levels and not just with our senses we have been there we have done it uh, we are done with it so um, see if you are in that place of your life where perhaps you are ready to move forward and certainly kriya yoga can give you that faster acceleration of what you are looking for well thank you so much next class we'll start a new chapter which is going to be the founding of yoga school at ranchi mm -hmm. so from you know <laughs> his real <laughs> high stuff to, let's come back to the simplicity of let's start a school for kids mm -hmm. um tomorrow we're going to 